You don't have to go back too far to a time when tonight's question wouldn't even have been asked. Is Christianity a power for good? Uh, There was a time not that long ago when it wouldn't have been questioned. Uh, Now that wasn't the case from the beginning. When Christianity first began it was seen as dangerous, it was seen as detrimental to society. But over time things changed. And some of you can remember a time when even if people weren't Christians themselves, there would have been a feeling that Christianity and its values were good things. But things have changed quickly. Christianity first moved from being seen as a definition of a good life to being seen as one equally valid option among many to now being seen as dangerous, intolerant, backward-looking, on the wrong side of history, and so on. Uh, As someone has summed it up quite well, Christianity used to be the good guy. Uh, Over the course of the last century, it came to be regarded as just one of the guys, whereas increasingly today, Christianity is being seen as the bad guy. So we've gone from, from the good guy to one of the guys to the bad guy. People today are are turning away from the Christian faith. And the reason that some of them give for doing so is that they want to live with more humanity, compassion and kindness. And they've come to believe that the way to do that is to break the shackles of the regressive religion they were brought up with. So increasingly today, Christianity is seen as a force for evil rather than good. Particularly when it comes to its teaching on human sexuality. And in uh, the face of of these changes, those of us who would call ourselves Christians have three options. The first option is to just give up on Christianity altogether, as many are doing. The second is to try and redefine Christianity and take out all the bits that mainstream culture finds particularly offensive. Uh, Churches like the Church of Scotland have led the way on that and in fact they've done so so thoroughly that there's almost nothing left. Uh, And as a result if if they continue to decline at the current rate they'll be extinct in 20 years So we could give up on Christianity, that's option one. We could redefine Christianity, that's option two. Now I guess one potential third option would just be to ignore the changes all around us. And for us still to speak and act as if people see us as the good guy, or at least as one of the guys. And it is the case that no matter how popular or unpopular our message is, If it is true, then we don't have any right to change it. When when Christians began to to get involved in the abolition of slavery, people thought they were absolutely crazy. Uh, But they they believed uh, that it was wrong and they stuck it out and attitudes changed. Uh, And so if something's true, we have to advocate for it, no matter what people think. But surely what we must actually do is is challenge the claims that are being made against Christianity. And specifically to try and show people what they're doing when they make these claims. 
And that's what I want to do this evening. Because actually what those shouting, uh, these things against Christianity are doing is standing on the walls of a castle. Uh, a castle that Christianity itself has constructed and which is built on Christian foundations. And they're standing on the walls of that castle and shouting all sorts of things against Christianity. Not realising that without Christianity there wouldn't even be a castle. Uh, not realising that if the foundations, the Christian foundations are taken away, sooner or later the whole thing will collapse. Let me flesh out that illustration a little bit by telling you about a man called C.S. Lewis. He was a, a professor, a professor of English, first at the University of Oxford uh, and then at the University of Cambridge. During World War II, the BBC asked him to give a, a series of 25 talks on Christianity, 25 radio broadcasts on Christianity. Uh, that was when Christianity was still seen as the good guy. But Lewis hadn't always been a Christian. He, he rejected the Christianity that he, that he had been brought up with. He declared himself an atheist. And his reason for doing that was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. You said, I cannot believe in a God when there is so much suffering in the world. But then Lewis began to question his own objection. He didn't begin to question the fact that there was cruelty and injustice in the world. Because no one could deny that. But he began questioning where he got these ideas of just and unjust from. And he put it like this, he said, A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. And so what was I comparing the universe to when I called it crooked? So if someone today was to look at our title and say, Well, Christianity is not a power for good, instead it's a force for evil. That actually begs the question of where are they getting the categories of good and evil from? Because in a world without God, who defines good and who defines evil? In fact, in a world without God, it doesn't appear self-evident that there even would be categories of good and evil. Think of the animal world. Do you watch a David Attenborough documentary and hear one animal being described as good and another animal being described as evil? Does David Attenborough talk about justice and injustice in the animal world? Those categories don't even make sense when it comes to animals. And yet somehow, as human beings, we instinctively use them. It's almost as if what makes us different from animals is that we are made in the image of God which is exactly what the Bible says is the difference between us and animals and what I want to do for the rest of our time tonight is to raise two questions which I think that without Christianity our society will struggle to answer 
For our first question, we'll go back to the story of the Good Samaritan that I read earlier. As I said, probably the most famous short story in history. Uh, The question I want to ask based on it is what should you do when you see someone in need and you have the ability to help them? What is the right thing to do when you walk past your enemy lying half dead on the ground? The the Jews and the Samaritans, of course, were, were bitter enemies. Well, the right thing to do is to do what the good Samaritan did, to to help him. But that wouldn't have been self-evident to those in Jesus' day when he told the story. After all, why does Jesus tell this story? Well, it's because someone is wanting to to limit who he has to consider his neighbour. Uh, Jesus has told him that he has to love his neighbour, but he thinks, well, surely that doesn't mean love everybody. So, uh, Jesus, can we please restrict uh, and let let me know who my neighbour is, uh, who I have to love and who I don't? Uh, And yet Jesus says, it's it's everyone. In the Roman world, they had a saying. It was the sort of saying that you might put in a frame, put on your mantelpiece. Uh, The way people do today with phrases like live, laugh, love. Well, well, the Roman version of that slogan was, every day do something to help your friend and harm your enemy. We like the first bit of that slogan, do something to help your friend. Yeah, we like that. But, but harm your enemy, uh, we, don't, we don't think that sounds right. It's not that loving our enemies comes naturally to us, but we sort of know that we should. And if we are going to try and harm them, we're certainly not going to broadcast that. And particularly, we have a sense that we should care for the most vulnerable in society. People who, who no one else is helping. Uh, people who are helpless unless we help them. Most people today would agree with the statement that a society should be judged by how it treats its weakest members. But where do we get that idea from? Because again, it's not self-evident that a society should be judged based on how it treats its weakest members. In fact, if the law of the universe is the survival of the fittest, then there's no real reason why the fit should put themselves out for the unfit. Quite the opposite, in fact. There's absolutely no reason why a traveller walking along the road where robbers are operating, as a good Samaritan was, should put himself at risk by hanging around to help someone who's already half dead anyway. I think that if we realise what the major cultures of the world taught before Jesus came along and Christianity began to spread, we would be shocked. We've probably heard about Plato, or at least we know the name. He was an ancient Greek philosopher. He died about 350 years before Jesus. He said that if children did not prove worthy, uh, that is physically fit, virtuous or whatever, then they weren't worth rearing. Uh, He assumed that parents would properly dispose of them in secret so that no one will know what has become of them. I think we would all agree that that is horrific. But the fact that it's wrong hasn't been self-evident to many people throughout history. 
if the law of the world is a survival of the fittest. Uh, nor is Plato's approach just, just a primitive notion uh, that people have grown out of as time has gone on. Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher in the 1800s, he raged against pity and compassion. Uh, compassion, a word used here of the Good Samaritan. Nietzsche said that pity on the whole thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law of selection. In other words, nature selects the strong and eliminates the weak. Who are we to disobey that law? A law that has given us life in the first place. That was his thinking. Uh, He declared that the weak and ill-constituted shall perish and we shall help them to do so. And if we recoil from such ruthlessness, and Nietzsche knew that we would, it's only because we are captive to what he called life's nausea. In other words, Christianity. Christianity, he complained, has taken the part of all the weak, the low, and the botched. If you think that we as a society should care for the weak, the low, and the botched, that's your Christianity speaking, even if you're not a Christian. Uh, People argue about whether we still live in a Christian country or a Christian society. Uh, I would say largely not. And yet, the Christian way of of looking at the world is proving harder to shake. But again, perhaps someone will say, well, yes, Nietzsche, he he lived over 2,000 years after Plato. uh, And yes, they effectively taught the same thing. But but no one believes that in the 21st century. At least no one in the civilised West. Plato and Nietzsche, they didn't say these things because they weren't Christians. It's just because they weren't as enlightened as we are. Well, let's see. If I ask you who is the most famous atheist in the UK today, uh, whose name comes to mind? I think for almost all of us it would be Richard Dawkins. In 2014, a woman asked Dawkins a question on Twitter. She said that discovering Down syndrome in any future pregnancy would present her with a real ethical dilemma as to whether to abort or not. Dawkins' unhesitating response was, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. And what unites Plato, Nietzsche and Dawkins isn't the era in which they lived, but it's the fact that they they lacked or or even openly rejected a Christian worldview. Why should we care for the weak and vulnerable? The answer isn't self-evident. Not if we have a purely naturalistic worldview. Whether they know it or not, those who shout from the walls of the castle that a society should be judged by how it treats its weakest members Those who shout that are standing on top of Christian walls, built on Christian foundations. Take away Christianity and it becomes a lot harder to answer the question of why we should care for the weak and vulnerable. Those who think that getting rid of of Christianity will result in a more compassionate society need to face up to what pre-Christian societies look like. 
are they also need to listen to people today who take atheism to its logical conclusion. I've already quoted Dawkins. Here's another very popular atheist writer today. He says, most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Human rights, he says, like God and heaven, are just a story that we've invented. They are not an objective reality. They're not a biological fact about homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut him open, look inside, and you'll find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA. But you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread. They may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they're still just fictional stories that we've invented. Many people want to get rid of the idea that human beings are made in the image of God. But if you do that, you lose the basis on which to argue that human beings have any unique or intrinsic value. So that's our first question tonight. What should you do when you see someone in need and you have the ability to help them? Another question that doesn't appear to have a self-evident answer without Christianity is the question, how much is a little girl worth? That was a question posed by Rachel Den Hollander in 2018. She was speaking of the trial of Larry Nassar, a man who had abused at least 265 girls over the course of decades as the team doctor for USA Gymnastics. Den Holder was the last of 169 women to give her victim impact statement. Years earlier, she had been the first to publicly accuse Nassar of sexual assault uh, and had been laughed at. And in her statement, she pleaded with the judge to consider the question, how much is a little girl worth? She asked her to impose the maximum sentence possible because of what the survivors were worth. Because she said they were worth everything. But now I go and ask a Roman the same question. Someone who was part of the world's great empire when Jesus was born. If you asked a Roman how much is a little girl worth, they might have offered a number of answers. She's free if you manage to salvage her as a baby from the rubbish heap where she was left to die. Or if slave traders got to her first, then you'd have to pay eight months wages to own her. Once she was yours though, her body belongs to you outright. It was accepted that every master was entitled to use his slave as he desired. Or if you just wanted the girl purely as and when, a visit to the nearest brothel would set you back the price of a loaf of bread. In Roman culture, what we call abuse, they simply would have called use. Freeborn Roman men had unquestioned the unquestioned right to the bodies of lower status women, children, prostitutes, and slaves. Rome did have its category of women who were off limits. Highborn women and wives had to have their chastity protected at all costs. 
But the main way that was safeguarded was by giving men access to the bodies of everyone else. The historian Tom Holland says, Sex was an exercise of power. In Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. The very things that strike us as abusive, the the power plays, the inequality, the use of other people for one's own gratification. In Roman society, it was assumed that that was the way things were meant to be. And then came Christianity. And against that sort of background in the wider culture, and with even Jewish men used to being able to easily divorce wives who didn't please them. Jesus came and he said no. Jesus pointed back to the way it had been in the beginning. One man and one woman for life. And he said, I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. By the way, do you know how Jesus' own disciples reacted to that? Did they say, well, well good job, Lord. We're, we're glad that someone is, is finally starting to hold people to good moral standards. No. They said, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. If the only get-out clause is the other person committing adultery or, or abusing them or abandoning them, if those are the only ways someone can get out of a marriage then we're not interested. In fact, they, they reacted not unlike Matt Hancock did last week to a speech at the NatCon Conservative Conference. Hancock, you, you might remember him, he was the, the health secretary who was caught breaching his own social distancing rules by kissing a woman he wasn't married to. Anyway, the speech he didn't like was where MP Danny Kruger said that the normative family and the mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children is the only basis for a safe and functioning society. Hancock's reaction, it is so offensive and it is so wrong. Don't try to impose it on anyone else. Thank you very much. Please, can we stop talking about this because it will put us out of power for a generation. Christians often talk about traditional marriage and trying to preserve traditional marriage. But what Jesus advocated in his day was just as radical as it is in ours. More so, in fact. And before the Christian view of sex and marriage came along, the answer to the question, what is a little girl worth, was very different. In the ancient world, adult relations with children were not merely tolerated, but celebrated. They called it love. Christians called it abuse. And it was outlawed during the reign of the Christian emperor Justinian in the 500s AD. The Christian church and Christian state worked together against the sexualization of children. Someone might say, well, it's not like anyone's advocating going back to those days. Maybe not. But who would say that the sexualization of children isn't a a big concern right across the board? 
And in fact, take away Christianity, take away the idea of little girls and little boys and women and men being made in the image of God. Take away the teaching that the human body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it becomes harder to answer the question of why abuse is wrong. (coughs) In May 2018, a German medical student gave a regional TED talk where she argued that paedophilia was an unchangeable sexual orientation. Now to be clear, she wasn't arguing that it was okay. She made that clear in her talk. But, but there was outrage and uproar. And it is easy to see where that sort of language can lead. It's not wicked. It's not unnatural. It's not perverse. Some people are just born that way. We need to try and understand them. Even take the sexual revolution of the 1960s. People say that Christianity degrades women. But what's been the result of the sexual revolution? Listen to the answer of Louise Perry. She's a feminist writer. She's not a Christian. But last year she wrote a book entitled The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. In it she says research on male and female attitudes towards casual sex make it overwhelmingly clear that what is really happening here is that it is overwhelmingly women who are being advised to cripple themselves emotionally in order to gratify men. Uh, There's a feminist saying that the sexual revolution has emotionally crippled women. What does she suggest as a solution? She says we would need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behaviour, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. And then she goes on, and we do already have such a technology, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. What many people call restrictive, she calls liberating. So what is a little girl worth? What is a young woman worth? Take away Christianity and those questions begin to be answered in very different ways. (coughs) Now our time is nearly gone. But at this point someone might raise another objection. And that is abuse in the church. Someone might say, surely the abuse scandals in the church alone are enough to conclude that Christianity is a force for evil. And that's something we have to take seriously. We can't just say, oh, that's, that's, that's not us, it's, it's, that's just a Catholic thing or, or whatever. Because it has happened in churches where people believe exactly the same things as we do. We have to reckon with that. But again, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan helps us here. Because in that parable, Jesus gives us an example of something that a priest does. And then says that it was wrong. It was wrong for the priest to walk past the victim. We know today as a society that sometimes priests and ministers can be the very worst people But actually that message has been there in the story of the Good Samaritan the whole time. 
Richard and Hollander's abuser brought a Bible to court to some of his hearings. And then Hollander, who's a Christian, herself called him out on it. She said, the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be hung around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. She was quoting Jesus himself. She then referred to those words from C.S. Lewis I quoted earlier, where he says, A man does not call a line crooked unless he first had some idea of what is straight. And then she said to her abuser, Laurie, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know that it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. What she means there by the straight line is good and evil as defined by God in the Bible. The straight line, she said, is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimisation or mitigation. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. Someone has said that for abuse to be abuse, we have to believe certain things. That bodies should be treated as temples, that sex is sacred, that children are valuable, and that the powerful should not exploit the weak, but rather serve them. Those values make up the straight line against which we say that Laurie Nassar's actions were crooked and wicked. But those values are not universal. They're not the way the animal kingdom operates. They haven't been the presumption of other human societies. They are Christian beliefs. As someone summed it up, Laurie Nassar is not excused of his evils by claiming some kind of Christianity. Rather, he is accused by it. It is very particularly the goodness of Jesus that defines the evil of his abuse. It is the goodness of Jesus that defines the evil of his abuse. But here is something remarkable. And we'll finish with this. Although she called what her abuser did evil and wicked, Rachel Den Hollander did not call it unforgivable. And in fact, she offered her abuser forgiveness if he would come to terms with what he had done. Not because what he did wasn't evil, but because it was. After all, if it wasn't evil, he wouldn't need forgiveness. But above all, while offering him forgiveness, she told him that what he needed was forgiveness from God. And that is something that we all need. People think they can live a more humane life without God. But what did humanity do with the only truly good person who ever lived? We killed him. We killed him. We saw the straight line of true goodness which exposed our crookedness and so we tried to stamp it out. And yet in God's great plan, Jesus' death is the very entrance to life. If only we will acknowledge that God alone defines good and evil. If only we will confess our own sinfulness that compared to that straight line, all of us are crooked. And if only we will put our trust in him. Amen. We'll close uh, with the words of Psalm 32. Uh, 
There, there will be some supper served after, uh, but we'll sing Psalm 32, the first six verses, page 59, tune 175. What must we do? We, we must acknowledge that the straight line exists. It is not a, a human construct, uh, but it, it is based on God's standards. We must acknowledge that we are on the wrong side of that line. And we must pray for forgiveness. Uh, the Bible does say that some sins are more wicked than others. Uh, but it also says that we are all sinners. And yet it offers forgiveness. As I said this morning, it offers the Bible offers a thing that cancel culture doesn't. People have a strong sense of morality today, even without God, a strong sense of right and wrong. But all our culture knows how to do is cancel someone. They don't know how to forgive. Uh, because the root of forgiveness comes from God alone. And that's something that all of us can experience. No matter what we have done. Uh, no matter how, how bad we have been. Uh, because Jesus offers this forgiveness to us tonight. So Psalm 32, 1-6. to If you're able, we'll stand as we sing. <clears throat> 